You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to Kinky History, the podcast where we discuss all of the dirty little secrets they probably left out of your history books. I am your host, Esme Louise James, and today we are talking about one of my favorite authors of all time. You have probably heard of Hans Christian Andersen. He is responsible for writing such popular fairy tales as The Ugly Duckling, The Snow Queen, and even The Little Mermaid. Disney owes a lot to Andersen's legacy. But Andersen also had some pretty kinky history. Some of the most common comments that I get are comments that say, I love kinky history so much and I don't understand why because I'm asexual or people asking me to talk about asexual figures in history and ask if they ever existed. So asexuality is a spectrum that takes multiple different factors into consideration. Things such as emotional attraction, emotional desire, romantic attraction, spiritual connection, just to name a few. Some people will experience no sexual desire at all for other people, but may experience romantic attraction. Some people who are asexual may even choose to engage in sexual behaviors, but find that they have no sexual drive to do so. And some people are just not interested in sex and romance, full stop. The point is that asexuality can look different to everyone. That's one of the reasons I really want to talk about Anderson today, because I think he marks such a fantastic example of a historical figure that is widely recognized as being asexual, but his experience also demonstrates the spectrum of asexuality. See, Anderson had various complicated relationships to his own identity, his own sexuality, and his own performance of gender. So today we are going to be talking all about the complicated sexual life of this prolific author. We will be talking about his incredibly high libido, as well as his love for self-gratification. We will be talking about his various romances with both men and women. And most importantly, we will be considering him as a historical asexual figure. So Anderson began from very humble beginnings. He was born in Denmark in 1805, and his family were certainly not well off. After his father died quite early in Anderson's life, his mother remarried and sent Anderson off to a school for the poor. It was here that he had to very quickly learn to support himself and took up a position as an apprentice to a tailor. However, Anderson would learn quite early on that he had an affinity for the arts. He was sent to become an actor at the Royal Danish Theatre and was believed to have an excellent soprano voice. His director here encouraged him to pursue writing, believing that Anderson had the heart and soul of a poet. So on the verge of becoming a man, Anderson goes off to pursue his career in writing at a grammar school. However, this experience is truly traumatic to Anderson. Later on, when he would come to write his autobiography, he would remember this time as being continually subjected to abuse, which the school believed that he needed to go through to become a better man. 
Despite all of the hardship that Anderson went through during his period training to become a writer, he would complete his training by 1829 and would publish his first literary piece. His early work included a collection of poetry, plays and travelogues, but by the 1830s, Anderson begins to write the fairy tales that we know him for today. Anderson's original work was published in small collections, but later he compiled them into larger volumes. These include some of his famous tales, including The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, even The Emperor's New Clothes and The Snow Queen. These stories were generally characterised by their very poignant themes, their imagery and, of course, their continual moral lessons. Today, Anderson is celebrated as one of the greatest writers of all time, and so many of his stories have gone to inspire many adaptations, including Disney adaptations. The Snow Queen, for example, was the tale which inspired the hit musical Frozen, and of course, The Little Mermaid needs no explanation. However, Anderson would also write some pieces that are potentially far less suitable for a Disney adaptation. The fairy tale mastermind behind these classics would also keep a very meticulous journal. And in his journal, Anderson liked to document all of his daily activities, including how many times he masturbated. Anderson developed a key in his journals um, and two crosses would symbolise that he had masturbated that day. And from this key, later historians have quite happily deduced that Anderson (laughs) masturbated nearly every single day. In fact, he loved self-gratifying so much that he would occasionally nip away in the middle of social gatherings to enjoy a masturbation session. As he writes here, When they left, I enjoyed a doubly sensuous double cross. Now, on the days not marked with a double cross, which are definite abnormalities, Anderson would provide a reason as to why he didn't enjoy wrestling with his sea snake that day, such as writing in the margin of his diary, Penis Saw. Despite Anderson's clearly high libido and love for self-gratification, he was also deeply unnerved by the thought of sexual interaction with another person, and these same diaries make that abundantly clear. Like this entry that happened on the 6th of January in 1834, where Anderson becomes completely overcome with fear at the sight of a naked woman. She stood there, half naked. I felt my whole body tremble. Or in the same year in February, where he says that two men came along and suggested women. No, no, I cried, and went home where I soaked my head. Because of a lot of these journal entries, later biographers and historians have felt quite comfortable in saying that Anderson was likely an asexual figure. There are multiple examples in his diaries of him feeling completely overcome with anxiety and fear whenever there is a potential interaction of a sexual nature with another person. 
But this really introduces and complicates the question of asexuality. How can a man who enjoys wrestling with his sea snake on a near daily basis and would nip away to masturbate whenever he had guests in his house also find himself completely unnerved by seeing a lady in a state of half-dress? As well as considering Anderson an asexual figure... People have also suggested that he was likely biromantic. Biromantic meaning someone who was attracted to both men and women in Anderson's case. Our favourite lover of jerking the gherkin was also a hopeless romantic. Anderson would fall regularly in love with people who simply could not reciprocate his emotion. He fell in love with multiple women who were completely out of his reach, and many of his stories and famous fairy tales are believed to have been influenced by these experiences. Anderson was certainly a man who was desperate to be loved. He spent his entire life completely self-conscious about himself and about his appearance. And if you've ever seen a picture of Anderson or any descriptions of him, this is your time to Google but he was described as a man who was unsightly, unnaturally tall with a large protruding nose and a gangly features. I can't remember where that description comes from, but you know, that's someone's very unflattering portrait of their friend. Um, And he spent his whole life self-conscious about the way he looked, but he was a man who so desperately wanted to be loved. In his diary at one stage, he writes a plea to God for how much he wants to find the love of his life. Almighty God, thee only have I, thou steerest my fate. I must give myself up to thee. Give me a livelihood, give me a bride. My blood wants love as much as my heart does. He was such a hopeless romantic that his first crush in his childhood wrote him a letter and when Anderson died, that same letter was found in a chest of his most treasured possessions. He would also have passionate love for the opera singer Jenny Lind, uh, who would inspire his story called The Nightingale and who was really the one woman that he pursued almost towards the end. At one stage, he got up the courage to proposed to her via letter and handed it to her as she boarded the train. However, Jenny would very much turn him down, saying that she only saw him as a brother. In 1844, she writes, Farewell. God bless and protect my brother in the sincere wish of his affectionate sister, Jenny. Anderson would go on to write and express his disappointment by portraying her as the anti-heroine in his story, The Snow Queen, which, if you've watched Frozen today, you would probably know that The Snow Queen was based on this story. So next time you see Elsa singing Let It Go, know that this was inspired by a rejection of Anderson's love. I feel like I would be doing everyone a disservice if I didn't go on a very quick tangent about my own kinky history with The Little Mermaid. Um, as a little fun fact, I was actually in the Australian like premiere of The Little Mermaid playing one of Ariel's sisters. Shout out to my girl Ariel. But in the course of this production, I was completely having this massive crush on someone in the cast. And this has to be one of the most confusing moments of my entire life. Because throughout the course of the show, this guy was dressed up as like 
a puffer fish at one stage, an entire lycra blue bodysuit playing a water droplet. <laughs> and I think I must have had the most confused feelings getting the absolute hots on for someone who is literally dressed as a jellyfish. One of the weirdest moments of my entire life was like <laughs> backstage of the show making out with this guy as he's still half in a puffer fish costume. <laughs> And then just midway stopping to be like, I am fucking a puffer fish. <laughs> that's just like not something you can ever recover from. Like I've studied sex my entire life and still I cannot understand that moment in my history of sexual experiences. The time I fucked a puffer fish as a mermaid. That's your overshare for this podcast episode. <laughs> But it wasn't just women that Anderson would fall in love with. In the 19th century, it was quite commonplace, far more than it is today, for men to be very affectionate and passionate and express their emotion and feelings for one another as friends. This was certainly not an era of awkward half-hugs and unexpressed bromances. Uh, Men would regularly write, as women did, to express just how much they loved and appreciated uh, others' friendship. However, even in the convention of the Man of Letters, Anderson very much crossed these boundaries. There's really no debate about that. In one instance, Anderson did have somewhat of a physical relationship uh, with the hereditary Grand Duke. As he writes in one of his diaries, The hereditary Grand Duke walked arm in arm with me across the courtyard of the castle to my room. Lovingly, he kissed me, asked me to always love him as though he was just an ordinary person, asked me to stay with him this winter. He fell asleep with the melancholy, happy feelings that I was the guest of this strange prince at his castle and loved by him. It is like a fairy tale. However, once again, Anderson's love does not work out for him. He would go on to try relationships with other men, such as the Danish dancer Harold Sharoff, and this one would inspire his story, The Snowman. Some biographers have gone to suggest that this relationship may well have had some sexual connotations, but if not, it was definitely a romantic interaction. Sharoff and Anderson would regularly have private dinners together. Anderson was gifted silver toothbrushes by Sharoff on his 56th birthday, and they definitely had a very close relationship with one another. During one winter, the two men may well have had a full-blown love affair and maybe some kind of sexual fulfillment. However, Anderson failed to have the discretion that was needed to pursue a homosexual relationship during this time, and many onlookers looked on at the relationship as being very improper and, if not, ridiculous. Anderson would himself refer to this period of his life as the erotic period, which he writes in his diary in 1862. But because of the controversy that this relationship saw from the public eye, Sharoff would break off whatever their relationship was, be it romantic or somewhat physical. And while Anderson would try and make amends and rekindle their love and spark, it was unfortunately to no avail.
But Anderson had one relationship, which is really the focus of our discussion today. And it is with a man called Edvard Colleen. And no, that is not the vampire from Twilight. It's Edvard Colleen. (laughs) Edvard Colleen and Anderson had an incredibly complicated relationship. We can see from Anderson's letters that this was by no means a platonic relationship. I long for you, yes. This moment I long for you as if you were a lovely girl. No one have I ever wanted to thrash as much as you. But neither has anyone been loved so much by me as you. In another letter he writes, I languish for you as for a pretty Calambrian wench. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. Anderson would also take quite romantic interactions with Edward, such as giving him a poem about a rose, which very much is seeped in erotic imagery. Rosebud, so firm and round, lovely as a girl's mouth, I kiss you as my bride. It was quite interesting when I was first talking about Anderson on TikTok, some of the comments pointed out something that I actually hadn't seen before. This idea of Anderson expressing the femininity of my nature, continually associating like I have feelings for you as those of a woman and continually placing himself in the woman's role led some people in like the TikTok comments to question whether if Anderson lived today in an age where we talk about gender identity and gender diversity, would Anderson potentially have considered himself trans? But once again, Anderson's love story doesn't have a happy ending. Edward Colleen cannot reciprocate the emotions that his friend feels for him. In fact, when Edward Colleen comes to write his own autobiography, he actually talks about the distress that not being able to reciprocate Anderson's emotions caused to him. I found myself unable to respond to this love and this caused the author much suffering, I know. In 1836, Edward Collin would announce his engagement to be married and this was absolutely devastating to Anderson. And while he initially took it pretty well, this really reached a tipping point for him when Edward Collin decided to speak to him in a letter and refer to him as a worthy friend. Anderson absolutely snaps. Why do you call me your worthy friend? I don't want to be worthy. That is the most insipid, boring word you could use. Any fool can be called worthy. I have hotter blood than you and half of Copenhagen. Edward, I feel so infuriated by this loathsome weather. I also long for you, to shake you, to see your hysterical laughter, to be able to walk away insulted and not come back home to you for two whole days. Anderson's kind of like role-playing here in a domestic relationship with Edvard, which I find really interesting in this letter. Like he wants to be able to have these domestic fights, but that's just not possible. By the time the wedding comes around, Anderson decides not to attend. 
Instead, he takes himself on a writing retreat and there he would write a story called The Little Mermaid. Now you've likely watched the classic Disney adaptation as a child or as an adult, and maybe like myself, you spend countless hours in the pool trying to be a mermaid and recreating Ariel's little moment when she's like, part of your world, and her hair's kind of like everywhere, and yeah, you spend a lot of time doing that as a kid. Um, Just me? Shit. But the original tale is a lot darker than this Disney-fied version. This tale is one that ends in absolute tragedy. This Ariel does not get her happy ending. In fact, she commits suicide and dissolves into the foam of the sea forever with her soul lost for all eternity. Can we talk about dark? (laughs) Ariel was the OG emo. Um, But this story is also very much a manifestation of Anderson's unrequited desire for Edward Collin. And why do we know this? Well, as well as him writing the tale while Edward's wedding is going on, one of his closest friends, and he decides not to attend the wedding, Anderson would actually gift this story, The Little Mermaid, to Edward Collin as a wedding present very much his way of expressing the things that he couldn't say, just like the Little Mermaid who loses her voice. Nautical imagery was a common way that Anderson expressed his queer desire to Edward throughout their relationship. In this letter, for instance, from 1835, he writes, If you looked down to the bottom of my soul, you would understand fully the source of my longing and pity me. Even the open, transparent lake has its unknown depths, which no divers know. Let's just compare this with the opening of the original Little Mermaid tale. We must not imagine that there is nothing at the bottom of the sea but bare yellow sand. No, indeed, the most singular flowers and plants grow there, the leaves and stems of which are so pliant that the single agitation of the water causes them to stir as if they have life. Fishes, both large and small, glide between the branches as birds fly among the trees here upon the land. If we subscribe to this story of The Little Mermaid as an expression of Anderson's queer desire, we can see that Anderson also casts himself in the role of The Little Mermaid, the person who has the loveliest voice on any of the earth or in the sea, but tragically cannot speak outside of the water. This was another thing that was actually pointed out to me as a potential expression of trans desire, that the only way that Anderson feels that he can express his story is by writing the story of a little mermaid who falls deeply in love with a man who becomes her friend and companion and yet ultimately falls in love with someone else, someone who is truly human when she can only pretend to be human. And yet again, we see Anderson cast himself in a female role. So after the Little Mermaid spies on the prince, she falls deeply in love with him and she goes to make a deal just like she does in the Disney film to become human. In this tale, however, the sea winch wants far more than just her voice. 
The sea witch also decrees that every step that the little mermaid takes on land will feel like glass is penetrating into her feet and she will be in a state of utter agony. Despite this and the lack of her voice, she must find a way for the prince to fall in love with her or else she forfeits her life. We should probably pause here to mention the depiction of the sea witch in the Disney adaptation, one of the greatest Disney characters of all time, Ursula. Ursula's design was inspired by a drag queen called Divine, who is very well known for her appearance in John Waters' movies. This is not just any old drag queen. Uh, People Magazine actually named Divine the drag queen of the century. This is the queen of all drag queens. Ursula's character was very much modeled on Divine's kind of like trademark heavy eye makeup and her jewelry and also her physical mannerisms were copied. Really unfortunately, Uh, Divine passed away the year before The Little Mermaid came out, so she never got to see her created persona become an animated classic character, who I think stands as one of the best characters ever created by Disney. Thank you very much, Divine. But of course, back to Anderson's sad tale. Despite everything that the Little Mermaid has sacrificed to get her man, the prince unfortunately feels his eyes turned away by a real princess. Just like the story of Edward and Anderson, the prince would go to announce his engagement to a different woman and the Little Mermaid would be forced to watch on as the two lovers marry. It's here that she's given one last chance to keep her immortal soul as a human. The sea witch gives her a dagger and says that if she is able to kill the prince, she will be allowed to remain human and keep her immortal soul. However, the little mermaid can't kill the love of her life. So instead, she sacrifices her own life and dives off of the ship and becomes one again with the sea. What would have happened if Anderson lived today? This is a question that I ask myself repeatedly as someone who has fallen in love deeply with the story of the Little Mermaid. If he had the terminology that we have today to express different factors of our identity, gender and sexuality, would he have a better way to have been able to manage his desire? Would all of his stories continue to end in tragedy or would the Little Mermaid have had a better chance? But instead, Anderson was left to write stories such as The Little Mermaid and The Ugly Duckling, continually feeling himself as an outcast in a society that he could never be understood by and he could never fully express himself within. If we had discussions such as asexuality and everything in his time, then perhaps he would have realised that his aversion to sexual interaction did not mean that he was dysfunctional, but he would also understand that that was a sexuality in its own right. And that is an understanding that we're only starting to come to terms with today. And while the dominant understanding is that Anderson was likely asexual, I think we can complicate this even further. 
there are arguments to be had that if we take the labels that we have today and the understandings of those and put them onto Anderson, we could see someone who experiences homosexual desire, but desire that is not allowed to be expressed within his very heteronormative world. There are arguments to be had that he was potentially bisexual or there is arguments like we've kind of talked about that maybe he was actually expressing a trans identity. He's someone who had an incredibly high libido, but also felt romance to both men and women. He's someone who felt completely adverse to the sight of beautiful women and yet could only understand his own identity by writing himself as a woman. Anderson is a truly fascinating person. And while his stories continue to be studied, celebrated and loved, I think we need to do the same with Anderson as a person. Perhaps the greatest tragedy in all of Anderson's story is that discussions of sexual identity and asexuality only started to take place a few years after his death. As early as 1896, Hirchfield, who was a very famous uh, sexual researcher, made mention in some of his studies of people who experienced no sexual desire and attempted to legitimize this. Alfred Kingsley, who had come along at the start of the 1900s, created a category for people who experienced no sociosexual contacts or relations, and this was included as a legitimate identity. So while asexuality didn't have a term, there were concepts to explain asexuality that are now about a hundred years old. And Anderson is obviously a celebrated and famous figure to look to, but there were also other authors around his time that were experiencing the same kind of asexual desire. J.M. Barry, the writer behind Peter Pan, is thought to have never consummated his marriage with his first wife. He was also suspected by some of his very close acquaintances to never have had any sexual interaction or desire. As one of his nephews would write, I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone. Man, woman, he was an innocent, and I think that's why he could write Peter Pan. Another author, George Bernard Shaw, expressed to his friends that the desires of the flesh had absolutely no interest for him. And while he would go on to marry, this was mainly done to avoid controversy because him and Charlotte wanted to live together. His wife Charlotte was also equally repulsed by the idea of sex and the two remained in an unconsummated marriage until their death. And if we can find asexuality in some of the most famous figures of the period, then just imagine how many more existed in society but had no terminology or reference to understand their experience and to try and navigate it. Even today, there is such discrepancy in how many people would be considered asexual. Estimates in studies via anywhere from 0.5% of the population to 3.5% of the population, which is a considerable difference in numbers. When I think of Anderson as a figure, he reminds me how important it is today that we do have access to education and understanding about our desires and sexuality. 
while some people on Facebook want to get really concerned that we're living in a world where labels have taken over and people need a label for everything, that point of view underestimates how important and vital labels can be in helping others find their identity. Just in having the term asexuality, in having the term biromantic, people can look to these labels and find empowerment in their own experiences. It can help people realize that what they're experiencing as a very complicated, messy sexuality actually has legitimacy and it's been shared by people all throughout history. So next time you're enjoying a good old sing-along to Under the Sea, remember that Anderson's stories and struggles with his unrequited queer romance are responsible for this fantastic emotional story that continues to resonate with us today. And let Anderson's story remind you that whether you believe it is better down where it's wetter or you prefer to keep it on dry land, that is entirely legitimate. I have been your host, Esme Louise James, and thank you so much for joining me once more at Kinky History. And if you're desperate for more, then you can swim on over to my Instagram, TikTok or YouTube Or take the splash and sign up for Kinky History Uncensored on Sunroom for plenty exclusive lessons, spicy extras, and even to ask me all of your burning questions. But either way, I will be sure to see you next time on Kinky History. Mm. (gasps) Oh!